I love the control. I love the way they're applied. Um, I, I'm, I'm abusing clay in ways I never thought that I could with, with them because they're basically sort of glaze, sort of a clay, and uh, they can touch the kiln shelf and that stick. It's just, there's a whole lot of freedom. Welcome to the Color and Ceramics podcast. I'm Bob Acton, and I'm glad to introduce Frank James Fisher to our show. Frank is an outstanding ceramic artist living in the United States. His professional background in marketing and graphic design has sparked his interest in the mass communication in our society today. Headlines, promotional copy, logos, branding, and graphic design have all found a second voice in his personal art. The artwork borrows the language and advertising images of American culture and manipulates the content into a deeper narrative about life. Surreal and random associations between images like Coca-Cola, handguns, product instructions, and newspaper headlines direct people through a personal journey of picture associations. We talk about his journey in art up to his current work with pop artifacts and flasks, but of course we touched on his use of dynamic color, strong graphic design, and form. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Color and Ceramics, the podcast for ceramic artists who want valuable ideas about using color from leading artists and world-class experts. Here's your host, Bob Acton, a sculptor and ceramic artist who's fascinated with color and how potters, sculptors, and artists use color in their work. Tune in as he talks with his guests about color, techniques, and the impact of color on people and art itself. Frank, thank you for joining us on the Color and Ceramics podcast. Excited to have you here today uh, to talk about all these things, color-based, surface decoration-based. And I, I got to tell you, I love your work. I have spent time looking at, you know, some of your, you know, I would might call them more traditional ceramic pieces, functional pieces, you know, bowls and platters and teapots and so on. And then you have these fantastic things you call tea cans, and we'll talk about those in a second, right? But those are wonderful pieces, and uh, so I'm excited about having you here on the show. I, I'm really, I'm really glad to be here, Bob. I followed you, so it was, uh, it was cool to see the whole uh, take you're taking with color and ceramics, because I think there is kind of that gap that nobody's really stepped in and filled. So when I saw that, that was great. And then when when we we exchanged DMs there about maybe getting on, I said, oh, this is going to be good. We get to do a little in-person talk. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. This will be great. This will be great. So, so I wonder if we could start off a little bit by you telling the people who's listening about your journey. Like what what's your why? What's your reason for doing this? Where where, where have you come from and what brings you here to today? Sure, sure. I grew up um, in a family with a, my father was a painter. He's an artist. So art was sort of an accepted element in the in the house. It was not uh, it was not that odd situation. Um, and I watched him. He was a painter. And uh, I went to school and uh, studied painting. I studied graphic design. He had a, a, um, a cataloging house. They did 
catalogs and things like that. So that was going to be what I did for a living. And the art thing was going to be on the side. That's what he did. Um, and as we went along, um, the uh, the art got more and more exciting for me. So I went and switched it over into, into marketing. Uh, and in marketing, color is huge. So, and I, I'd always loved color. Um, I was afraid of it at first. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it can get out of hand real fast. Um, but, um, the, um, when I studied painting, you get, I studied realism and I moved into abstraction, but in, in realism, you kind of really got to know your stuff if you're going to pull off a convincing illusion on canvas. And that was probably my training was as far as understanding the color wheel and the tertiary, the secondary, the primary, Neglis, and 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 monochromatic and, and all that. That was really where I got my my foundation. And then I, when I moved into abstract, and that that kind of freed up my brush, and taught me more about the balance of the of, of the of the image and the you know the, the golden circle and all this these things kind of all came together. And it wasn't until I, I tried in high school ceramics but it was a miserable failure uh, i liked three-dimensional art and my father said uh, when you're in college make sure you take some ceramic courses which i did good and for him yes yeah very smart man um but i was afraid of color still at that point so everything i did was white you know <laughs> give it a give it a good dip so i got my i got my forms down but everything was pretty much white um and then it was probably around 25 years ago, um, I took a course at uh, Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, and uh, in ceramics. And that's when it bit me again. And I've stuck with it since then. Very cool. Well, we're all glad you did. You know, that's very interesting that you bring up this issue of color provoking some anxiety in us, right? And because I... It, it certainly did for me. I would work on forms to make sure the form was right. And then I'd go to apply some color and my hand would get a little tight. And, and, uh, and cause I was worried about wrecking the piece, I guess was my exactly. fear. Yeah. 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 You, you'd, you'd spend months making all these pieces and they'd accumulate on your shelves. And then it was time to put some color on them. And, um, it it, it uh, it's very daunting because you've got a big investment in time and in shape and some of those things you're not confident you could make again, uh, not to the degree that they were. Um, so yeah, there was um, there was a point there where I got so stressed about doing because um, you would I would try to make them so perfect when I was glazing, and I got kind of stressed, and I was glazing at the studio at, at Schoolcraft and I looked down and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I looked down, there's a sheet of bubble wrap and um, I plunked the bubble wrap right in the glaze, drained it off real good. And then I slapped it around the, the, the piece and pulled it off. And it had this incredible pattern. And from that, really that point there, the decorating was, was okay with me. You know, I, I I crossed a bridge or something there, and all that abstract background and the painting background and all everything came flooding in, and it kind of became the two became one. Is 
you know, bringing the brush in, bringing abstract, bringing pattern, being reckless, being a little casual with it and seeing what happened. Um, and uh, that was a that was a that was a good moment for me. That was a pivotal point. That that is so. It's sort of being afraid of jumping off the high board uh, in a swimming pool. You just have to sometimes do the first one, right? Yeah. And then yes. realize you're not dead. It's okay. Yeah. The piece hasn't been wrecked. Um, oh. and everything will be okay. And that's a sense of freedom then that you yes. really get with using color in this case, but other things as well. I think you can become very OCD about it. Uh, everything just so precise. Um, and that that experience and ones after that, where I was looking around for anything in the house, in the hardware store, anything that I could use as a glaze transfer unit to, to pattern on things, uh, that was kind of the obsession. And, and all I really worried about was, did I get uh, enough glaze on the inside that it would be safe, food safe? And uh, did I do a really nice job trimming the foot? And, <laughs> and then everything above the foot, everything that was above the the, the foot to me is kind of the, uh, uh, that's the connection to the real world. That's the little pedestal. And everything above that is a free for all. And so that, that, that approach really, you know, loosened up all those, you know, mental anxieties was there. I can get a good foot on it and I'll have fun on the top. So. <laughs> That's very good. And other potters would respect that because often when you see somebody walking into a gallery and turning a piece over and looking at the foot, you know, they're a potter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't re refrain from picking up that pot. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so tell us about your work. Like you've got these, two, at least as I see it, two sets of work. Could you talk a little bit about the forms you use and and where that came to sure. be sure I, I i started out um with functional teapots i really love teapots and i did a lot of teapots um and i had uh, in the neighborhood uh like 20 minutes away was john glick the great american potter um and um i loved his work so i modeled a lot of my early stuff after that keeping it very functional but trying to be free um, but I got frustrated. Uh, it, it felt like I was trying to measure up to what he would do and not really tapping inside to what I, I wanted to do. And I was at a flea market and I saw these old rusty gas cans and I don't know, the dime drop, the, the levers all clicked in the right place. And I just saw a giant teapot in the shape of a gas can. And uh, I said, you know, that might be kind of interesting to kind of explore that. Uh, and so I got the forms and I, you know, I did them in, in porcelain and I was really into Raku uh, around that time. And um, <laughs> like you said, stepping off the diving board, you know, I, I got a porcelain piece. I'm going to use Raku glazes and I'm going to Raku fire it. And, and I had a porcelain piece with sharp edges because I was trying to imitate metal. So none of it was, I, I, I was definitely off the, the, the board there. There's nothing was in the safe zone. And uh, it, it just a miracle. I had the right kind of clay. It had a, a, um, a, a lot of good grog in there. Uh, in the porcelain, there was a malachite that kept, kept it together. Everything just worked out. And that was my next next few years was these, these tea cans. Yeah, they're, they're gorgeous. 
And yeah. and as you said, that was really risky using porcelain and raku uh, like that is a danger zone most people would get into right off the yeah. bat. Yeah. Uh, it was it was at a class period and and I we were all friends, but a lot of them wanted to come out and see, you know, we were firing outside. A lot of them wanted to come out and, and see the results. Yeah. But I think there was some that was almost like going to see a car crash. You know, it's <laughs> like, well, how, how bad will this end up? You know, but it, it turned out wonderful. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, I felt good. I felt like I had a good direction then. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, they're they're gorgeous. How, how do you, with those in particular, manage the uh, sort of relationship between the form and the color? Because your work has a lot of illustration on it. And in fact, I I thought as you as I was looking at your work, you're really a mix between a potter and a printmaker because you're using lots of printmaking techniques applying uh, i'm not sure yet you'll tell me what it is but like an underglaze or something on there mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that sure um first the first thing i would probably say is that it was lucky i met john murphy john albert murphy he was a uh, good and very good in raku and he was pointing out different things that would happen like if you underfired it slightly it would go matte um and uh different uh different weird oxide combinations and and uh i knew uh and met robert pipenberg another great raku artist out that way and so there's a lot of things that just kind of came out right for me to get the right glazes the right colors um and a lot of experimenting and things like i said i had that abstract background so if you're familiar with abstract art there's a color field painting there's this like rothko and, and and those were there's a lot of looseness within the area and that would be um that would be something i kind of defined on the form of the of, of the piece is that the front panel which would be the primary panel uh, of of the of the can and, and i think in terms of packaging when I, when I do these but that front panel would be an abstract area that would be monochromatic with colors so it might be red because I want to imitate a gas can. So the front panel would be red and I would have a lot of fun, you know, dabbing and splashing red uh, um, glazes on there. And then the back panel I would determine would be white. So I'm defining uh, a ceramic piece the same way I would design packaging or anybody would design packaging like a gas can or something like that. So so I'm, I'm borrowing all this advertising marketing guidelines and i'm wrapping them around a ceramic piece so it's it, it, in some ways it's uh it, it makes it easier because you're sort of cheating there's some parody to it and that but at the same time uh once you've kind of outlined the the areas that are going to be graphic you can have fun in those little jigsaw pieces mm -hmm. and, and decorate them that way yeah it uh, seems like you really made a your own surface, your own uh, piece to work on, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Your and own I, canvas, I guess. Yeah. I I did, you know, I could this the brush. I couldn't get the brush to be uh, um, precise enough when I would when I would paint these uh, paint when I would glaze these, um, and I started getting into stencils, and I was familiar with stencils because I had worked as an illustrator with an airbrush 
And if you're an airbrush illustrator, that's one of the tools is having stencils or friskets that you would spray to contain your, your paint. So um, I started cutting out what I would basically do is, is find a gas can uh, like um, mobile with the Pegasus horse. And I print out on a sheet of Xerox paper, a Pegasus to the right size. And I take my X-Acto knife and I'd cut it out and I'd put some spray glue on it and I'd press it against the can. And that would block any glaze from going where that, that, that uh, frisket, that, that stencil was. And so I could splash all my colors, my reds all around that. And then I just peel it off and I'd have nice bare clay there which I could put a coat of uh, white crackle over or something like that. And that would preserve the white on it there. So it, it, all that was, all that was done with stencils <laughs> and you can go to a, you can go to the, the, like a hobby lobby or a hobby shop craft shops. And they have um, pre-cut letters that are adhesive, like for scrapbook people and that. And I would buy bunches of those and I would spell out, you know, like five ounces, or I would spell out whatever those, and I would use those as pre-cut stencils to kind of cheat it, to cut to it faster and that. So uh, that was that was how I would get them so tight. And I basically made a can as perfect as I could. And then afterwards, I would, you know, splatter wear and rub it off with a little sandpaper or on my jean leg or scrape it or ding it and dribble and splash glazes that look like oil just to kind of give it that old relic feel yeah a little rougher those are that's a real complex process making the piece in such precision that you do then yes. creating the canvas uh with that kind of abstract feel then layering that with uh you you and you use glazes to put on all of the yes uh, lettering that was my i used a combination of um like custom mixed glazes, like I had uh, a Raku black glaze, I had Pippenberg patina, I had white crackle. I used those, but I also got into the low fire glazes, like the ones you can buy at Amico and that, and I would get the matte. Um, not that it made a big difference, but I was uh, I kind of liked those, those colors better. And uh, I would use those for all my brighter, more commercial looking colors. And if I had to get a certain orange, like like if you're into automotive, there's a, uh, a color called Fram Orange, which is motor parts in that. I would mix a little bit of the red and a little bit of the yellow, and I get just the right orange. So there's a little bit of that color play in there, too, trying to get it just right. Wow, that's, uh, that is a lot of work, a lot of precision work uh, to do that piece. And, and I'm thinking of many potters who I know who make the form and then dip it in a, in a big bucket and then they're happy with it. I mean, the, the two, it's a wide extreme between that easy process to the complexity that you're working in. It, one thing that happened when I, um, when I was doing these pieces was that I borrowed something from, from advertising and graphic design and it made a huge difference in everything I did from then on is, is when I would sit down at the wheel and I was going to throw, whether it would be a teapot or a mug from then on, I would always envision what the final design, what the final piece looked like, color and everything. So I wasn't just uh, sitting at the wheel uh, and building a bunch of blanks 
that I would decorate someday when I felt like it. I was sitting at the wheel and I knew in the case of a tea can, I knew that this was going to be a shell gasoline tea can and that it was going to be yellow. And I knew the top, I would probably make that red. And that translated to all, most of the stuff that I, I do now, I don't really just do a blank ceramic piece. I've already kind of dedicated myself to the design and everything that's going to happen. And it, it's a lot more liberating. Um, and it, it organized me a lot better. Uh, it, I think I thought a little, I think I think a little deeper about color and all that, because as I'm making the piece with wet clay, I might think, you know what, this might be one that I want to put a little bit more blue or a little more red or, or whatever. I want the, the neck of this to be a little taller because I want to have a lot more uh, black at the top. Or, or I'm making decisions in the process because I've already committed to the final product at the end. And it kind of is all going to work and streamline together to a, get to the final piece. A lot of pre-work, I might call it, before yes. you sit down at the wheel. Yes, yes. And, and 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 not to say that I, I like rigorously got it planned out, but at the wheel, I do know where I'm going at the end. It won't be three months later, I go to the shelf and I got, you know, 20 pots and I'm going to wonder what glaze is looking good in the in the in the bucket. I've already kind of committed that these are going to be that and I've designed this the space to accommodate graphics and, and things like that. So it kind of forced me to get um, a little more organized. And, and that's the same way that a painter would work. You know, if you were going to do a landscape or if you're going to do it, you, you kind of make your decisions up front. And then it's more of a time of just executing, executing your plan. And what I like about that is I can kind of fine tune the, the, the decorating and the process and all that as I'm going along and not be occupying my mind as what if this was a whole, what, what would this color be or what should I make this pot or anything like that? I'm, I'm, I'm not occupying my mind with big decisions. I'm filling it with tighter decisions. If that, if that, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I, I think what I hear you saying is you're really much more focused then uh, yes. in, in your work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think production potters have that, that advantage too, where they know they're going to do, you know, 40 mugs and they know that they've mixed up a batch of, of glaze a certain way and they know how they're going to decorate it. And I think there's something, um, there's something comforting about that in getting into the process and not being a lot of anxiety about every little baby step decision because you've already got a master plan and you're executing it and you've got little spontaneities in between, but it's not like it's a, it's a, it's a whole load of decisions I'm going to have this Tuesday when I go to glaze. Cause I don't even know if I got enough, you know, glaze from the certain colors I want. It, it's you've committed to that and executing. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, often people will say it's the moment of opening the kiln is a surprise, right? And uh, and it can be a pleasant surprise or not a pleasant surprise. But it sounds like that the work, the process that you do to make your work really helps you reduce that surprise, much like a production potter might. And, and uh, if, you know, if you fire it correctly at the right temperature and the right length of time and so on, then... Yeah you can pretty well predict what's going to come out. Yeah. You, you take a little, you take a lot of the gamble out of it. 
Yeah. Now, now, the, now, the work you do in these cans, and I'd really encourage people to go to your website, and we'll put all that information up on our page for people to check out your Instagram page and so on. I'd love people to go and see that. When I look at some of your other work that uh, I might call it more traditional ceramic work, it's got a very different feel than the precise images on the, on the cans. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. If I look back, I think uh, my functional wear, my traditional teapots and things like that were the beginning. I think the the tea cans were kind of a transition to be a little more free with what I do. And then the final, what I call my pop artifact, which are kind of a combination of slab and wheel, um, are kind of like the, the next generation off of that. I couldn't have made that direct move. I couldn't have gone from just a functional teapot to the slabware that I the slab work that I've done. There had to be something in there that was a combination of slab clay and um and thrown and altered pieces in that. And that's kind of what happened with those and a lot of freedom in the graphics and things like that. Um, the new work um comes are is very reliant on printing plates to make the graphic impressions. And it's the old old form of like letterpress printing plates where it's actually dimensional that I can you know, I can you know imprint into the clay and it you know it recesses it out and I can put glazes and things like that in there. Um, There's more of a sense of freedom as as I see it in those pieces than in the tea cans in which you're trying to replicate an not exact but an ex, more exact form and image and now in your work there's this freedom of all sorts of graphical images and shapes and textures and yes and that's you know that that that's pretty accurate um i i feel like um if 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 i'm going to do a piece now the the skill set and the muscle memory and all that that i would approach it whatever i do is going to feel like a continuation of my style i have uh, enough ingredients and in how i approach something that it will look like my my art whereas if it was a a, a teapot the shape of the teapot has got a lot of restrictions to it um and basically it might only be some little nuances of how i handled the wet clay or did I have something that's very unique in how I glaze it? The, the, the new the new work is so um so so unique, so different that whatever I do, because of the criteria of how I approach it, it's gonna look like definitely one of my pieces, is if that makes makes sense. So there is a ton of freedom because I feel like I don't have to make it look like the rest of my work, my process is already going to guarantee that. Yeah, absolutely. I really do get that sense when I see that work. You know, I, um, my background is I was a psychologist for many years. And one of the areas that was always of interest to me was the notion of resiliency and longevity and looking at the factors that help us live a long and healthy life. And 
And aside from eating and so on, eating well and exercising, one of the areas that lots of people talk about and has some good research behind it is that we need to find something that keeps us energized, something that gets us up in the morning. So I'm really interested in what excites you these days about uh, color, pottery. What what's uh, what's exciting you now? What what really changed me was underglazes. I use underglazes almost exclusively now. And I didn't come about them till about maybe three years ago. And I, I don't know how I missed that train. You know, <laughs> I, you know, had the cone tan the, and the reduction and the oxidation and Raku and all these different things. And I'd seen it floating around in studios, underglazes, and I just never picked them up. Um, but there's something um, so similar to uh, paint, uh, like gouache and, and acrylic paints that I just completely love them. I, um, I, um, I, I, I love the control. I love the way they're applied. Um, I, I'm, I'm abusing clay in ways I never thought that I could with, with them because they're basically sort of glaze, sort of a clay, and uh, they can touch the kiln shelf and that stick. It's just, there's a whole lot of freedom there. So, and, and the vibrancy of the colors, um, unlike, um, there are a lot of glazes out there that I that I, I, I really like, and I'm talking about traditional glazes, cone 10 and, and, and the, the, the cone six and oxidation. There's a lot of glazes I really love, um, but they don't always play well with other colors. Uh, and so you got to be very precise with where they're at. And uh, I might truly love a, a, a black glaze, um, but it it doesn't play off real well against this other matte glaze that I like. And there, it starts creating a different aesthetic than what I, but the underglazes, they're always matte. They're always bright. They're always vibrant. Uh, you can tone them down if you want, but uh, I, I like that. And they, and they stay where you put them. They don't tend to wander around. Um, so from from my background and my skill set, I really I really like that. And I can be I can water them way down and use them like a watercolor. I can keep them opaque and sort of have them in pasto. So it, 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 it's opened up a whole whole wide range for me. Mm-hmm. It it really is much more predictable using them as opposed absolutely. to something else, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. And and you, you can kind of tell the piece, the color of it and how it's going to look when it goes into the kiln, as opposed to some colors, like if I was to talk about like licorice black, which is a cone six glaze that I totally love. It basically looks like a, a dark burgundy when you're when you're mixing it and putting it on and you keep trying to imagine what it's going to look like. Here, it's all like uh, real life. It's actual time. It's. It, it's not as bright as it will, but it, you, you can kind of get the balance. And you can tell when you glaze the piece um, or underglaze the piece, there's a confidence in the application. There's a, um, there's a control that has a little bit of spontaneity and, and a little bit of freedom, but also a tightness. And you can see it on the piece that even before you fired it, you know that that's going to come out because it's got some energy to it. Um, And I would have that sometimes 
with other glazes with the, the like a cone six or, or that but maybe those colors would run or they, they you know they do different things maybe it was like a pumpkin orange and you know it happened to have the wrong color there and it's run down on the shelf and i got these um they're, they're just a lot more trustworthy <laughs> yeah absolutely so, so you have taken a whole variety of skill sets from painting to cone 10 as you talked about it working with glazes raku um at your work in marketing and graphic design and and now your work is a culmination of of all of those technical skills and practice sets and muscle memory i think you used the phrase i, I want you to imagine a a person who's more on the approach to jumping off the high board and they're they're maybe um somebody who's entering into the ceramics field or somebody who's been in the field for a while but wants to push themselves into a new some new work what what advice would you have for this person about how they should push themselves and approach things um one place that i liked to hang out was at, at in in the in the classroom was i liked to see what came out of the kiln from everybody else um I probably learned as much from that as anything. And a lot of times people would be so disappointed in a piece that came out because it didn't fulfill their vision mm -hmm. of what they put in. But I would look at it and I'd say, oh my gosh, the way that glaze is running, that's like a, like a, a, a hair fur. It's, or it's, uh, you know, what's going on there. It's almost like a crystalline, but it's not. That's a, you know, and one of the things that, and that kind of would get you get me jump started on a lot of things, and it would it would lead to more explorations. Is is these proposed failures that that were out there? The other thing that um, has really helped me a lot is working in a series. So if I'm going to do, um, I do um, uh, like little flasks, or I do like a plane. I will. Um, work out what my color palette is going to be and I will jump into it and I'll do five or six that are almost identical, but they'll have some variations on it. And the variations will be, it might be in what I, how I print it, or it might be a slightly different color in, 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 in some of the, the, the secondary colors that I use on it. It allows me the freedom to experiment and not feel like I'm gambling everything on one piece because um, I've got maybe five that I'm going to put in. And because I know that I'm going to have a loss in there, I'm not so stressed, I'm not so tight, I'm willing to take some chances with those. So if you're kind of in that experimental, you want to try to jump off the, the board and see what it is, do four or five of them and play around with them. Keep them maybe 80% the same and just do some variations with them or that, but that, that series is very liberating. It is, me. isn't it? I, I find the same. And as you get closer to the end piece, if you've got your five or six, right, that it starts your feeling and you know, the way you approach the fifth or sixth piece, at least for me, feels okay. different, right? Feels more free in lots of ways. Yes. Yeah. And and there's some things that you might have learned on how you poured or dipped the glaze 
on the first two that by the time you get to that fifth one, you've got a little learning curve on it. And so that one is going to be similar, but it's going to be a little different. And then those five pieces, um, I'll stick them on the shelf and I'll keep looking at them for a year because some of them did turn out the way they were supposed to when I put them in the kiln. But after a year, I kind of warmed to them and it's like, oh, you know, that failure was was kind of good over here on the backside. I, glad I got my notes. I think I'll go take a look at that again. That, that yeah, it's uh, the happy mistakes, but yeah. just being able to recognize it. Frank, do you think, you know, I've really appreciated you spending some time with us here today. And, and I wonder if there is something that you think you'd like to tell the audience about color and surface decoration that we haven't covered. Hmm. I think the, if I was to, um, if I was to start over again, the first thing I would do is I'd buy myself one of those little dialing color wheels. Mm-hmm that you have that has uh, all, all, all the different colors on there. And I'd buy myself a couple books about color and what colors work good. And there are books out there that I know you enjoy that would be the psychology of color. And I'll show you palettes that are demonstrate urbane colors. They'll show you palettes that, that are more nostalgic or more romantic um, and kind of learn about that because I think um, that whole color thing you can, before you even pick up a piece, you will recognize the color and you might not fully f- understand the form, but that color is going to send you a message. And if you can kind of get a handle on, on, on how to apply color and use color to your advantage, a lot of terrible pieces can, can look a whole lot better. And I think it'll take a lot of stress out of actually sitting down in the mixing room or the glaze room and putting stuff on and and, and and dealing with it. So. Yeah, and developing that knowledge, I think, is what you're talking about. Absolutely. It really helps you, because I think color uh, provokes an emotion in people. It provokes us to have an emotional reaction to the piece. Definitely. And as you said, different colors produce a different emotional reaction to us, maybe even at different points of time. Right? Yes. So, so being able to have that technical knowledge is really critical. Yeah. To kind of understand it. And you probably experience this too, because you use a lot of color in your sculptures. I know there's days that I'm going to go, I should be going down there and I should be doing things in reds and browns for that particular piece. And I can't do it that day. Emotionally, I'm not in a red brown or blue green. And I will just set it aside. So even you, you have to be, you know, as the receptor, you have to be, in the right emotional place you you you, there are times when i just do not have an aggressive color feel to me i'm i'm very toned down and uh that'll be a different type of piece so it it, to me it isn't just an automatic plug plug and play Mm -hmm. you've got to kind of be in the right mind frame to experiment you know if it's a a real active palette or if it's a real subdued palette too yeah like i really sense um a maturity in you, I guess I would use the word, when you are able to be aware of yourself enough to know that I'm not in that space and I need I need to uh, honor that and I need to get into a different bit of work. Uh, like that's a maturity rather than sort of saying, oh no, I've got to do it anyway and I'm just going to jump ahead. 
Yeah. The, the other thing too is, 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 is it'll take the joy out of it for me because I start feeling like I'm a factory and that regardless of what's in front of me or how I'm supposed, I should have emotional connections to the piece that, that um, if I've just got to get that thing glazed this morning and I, I'm just kind of doing a job, I'm not really making that piece special. Yeah. That joy is gone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just following a blueprint and, and I, I, I don't want to like trip over what I said before, but at the same time, you've got to be into it. You've got to have the joy to it. Awesome. What, what great thoughts we've had here today, Frank, I really appreciate you spending some time with people and I'm sure people will be very excited about checking out your work and thinking about many of these things as it approaches their work. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad that was fun talk. Like I said, talking to a color guy. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's nice. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening to the Color and Ceramics podcast with Bob Acton and his guests. Please help others find the podcast by subscribing to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts, such as iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, or other podcatchers. And don't forget to give us a review. We'll see you next time.